0: Section twenty three of the Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Foster. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, a Chronicle of Our Own Time by Oscar D. Skelton. Nation and Empire. Part three. But it was not in Europe alone that these nations sought expansion. The belief that empire overseas was necessary to national greatness, and that sea power was the means to that end, spread through continental Europe. During the thirty years following 1880, France added three and a half million square miles to her colonial possessions, Germany a million, and Italy a quarter million. Even the United States was carried away by the current, and Great Britain, already the greatest of colonial powers, picked up nearly four million square miles more. Europe's aggression stirred sleeping Asia, and Japan gave promise of beating her teachers at their own game this hasty parceling out of the non-white world brought friction and often threatened war for years a conflict with russia was believed inevitable in england then france became the inevitable foe next germany took up the role though felt at fewer points her rivalry was more serious a state with the ideals of medieval feudalism and the might of a modern industrial nation with all the wealth and organizing power of industry and science at the disposal of a monarchy based on divine right and a military aristocracy which moulded and mastered the nation through control of school and press and army was a constant danger to its neighbors germany's aims were more aggressive than those of the western democracies and its methods were more efficient than those of other european states of no higher ideals True, the democratic and anti-militarist forces were gaining ground in Germany itself, while elsewhere the folly and waste of militarism were rousing unprecedented efforts toward peace. But no way out was found. It was clearly impossible for one state to disarm while its neighbors armed to the teeth. A few fitful efforts in which Great Britain took an honorable part to bring about a concerted halt came to nothing. The world appeared convinced that the only statesmanlike way to avert war was for each state or group of states to make itself stronger than every other state or group the war of armaments went on unchecked europe slept on a powder-mine in every dominion the new sense of peril stirred instant response if britain's rivals had counted on the dominions holding aloof in the honour of her need or had held their resources negligible they were speedily awakened in australia in new zealand in south africa and in canada press and parliament voiced the new realisation of danger and the new determination to face it more effectively At first, the prospect in Canada of speedy and harmonious action was of the brightest. Mr. Foster gave notice in the House of Commons of a resolution in favour of Canadian naval preparations, and the leaders of both parties met in private conference and agreed upon the general course to be followed. Late in March 1909, Mr. Foster moved his resolution and supported it with powerful and kindling eloquence. He dwelt on the burden which Britain bore alone and the urgent need that Canada should take a more adequate part in naval defence he opposed strongly the policy of a fixed annual contribution. The certainty of constant friction over the amount, the smack of tribute, the radical defect that it meant hiring somebody else to do what Canadians themselves ought to do, the failure of such a plan to strike any roots, were fatal objections. A Canadian naval service was the only possible solution, though for himself he would agree to vote a dreadnought as a preliminary step. Mr. Borden emphasized the need of action and advocated a Canadian naval force of our own, Sir Wilfrid Laurier declared that Canada must realize to the full both the rights and the obligations of a daughter nation by rising to any sacrifice that might be needed to maintain unimpaired the power of the British empire essential as it was not only for Canada's safety but for the civilization of the world as to the form of action he opposed being stampeded into any spectacular policy inconsistent with the principle of self-government and closed by moving a series of resolutions which with some changes suggested by Mr Borden were unanimously accepted by the house the resolutions recognized the duty of Canada to assume larger responsibilities with growth and strength, declared that under existing constitutional relations money payments to the British Treasury would not be the most satisfactory solution, and expressed cordial approval of any expenditure necessary to promote a Canadian naval service to cooperate in close relation with the British Navy. During the summer, a special conference was held in London, attended by ministers from all dominions mr mckenna while repeating the orthodox admiralty view that considerations of strategy favored a single navy now recognized that other considerations had to be taken into account and that room must be found for the expansion of national sentiment while laying the foundation of future dominion navies to be maintained in different parts of the empire these forces would contribute immediately and materially to the requirements of imperial defense no wonder that the london times congratulated australia and canada on their achievement in having at least educated the admiralty up to their own point of view unfortunately the convert was soon to backslide but for the present hearty and ready aid was given in establishing the dominion naval policy australia agreed to form a distinct fleet unit consisting of a large armoured cruiser three unarmoured cruisers six destroyers and three submarines with auxiliary ships canada not an island like australia or great britain had two seaboards to protect 10,000 miles apart. The Canadian representatives therefore, while agreeing that a second fleet unit in the Pacific would be desirable in the future, requested suggestions, which were given for the expenditure first of an equivalent and second of a lesser amount on two squadrons. When the Canadian Parliament met in January 1910, Sir Wilfrid Laurier submitted the Naval Service Bill, which provided for the establishment of fleets according to the plan finally approved by the Admiralty the ships were to be under the control of the Dominion government, which might in case of emergency place them at the disposal of the Admiralty, summoning Parliament to ratify such action. The bill was passed in March. In the autumn the cruiser Niobe, 11,000 tonnes, and Rainbow, 3,600 tonnes, purchased from the Admiralty reached Canadian waters, where they were to serve as training ships. Recruiting for these ships was begun, and, while not speedy, was reported by the department as satisfactory. The Halifax and Esquimo dockyards were taken over, early in nineteen eleven a naval college was opened at halifax and in may tenders were received ranging from eleven to thirteen millions from six british and canadian firms for the construction in canada of four bristol cruisers one bodicea cruiser and six destroyers in june nineteen eleven at the imperial conference in london agreement was reached as to the boundaries of the australian and canadian stations the naval services of the two dominions were to be exclusively under the control of their respective governments but in time of war any fleets or ships placed at the disposal of the british government by the dominion authorities would form an integral part of the british fleet and remain under control of the admiralty during the continuance of the war training and discipline were to be generally uniform dominion ships were to fly the white ensign at the stern as the symbol of the crown's authority and the distinctive flag of the dominion at the jackstaff then came the reciprocity fight The blocking of supplies by the Conservatives and the general elections of September, all intervening before any tender had been finally accepted. Long before this time, however, the issue had given rise to bitter party controversy. The unanimity of Parliament in 1909 had not truly reflected the diversity of public opinion. Mr. Borden was not able to carry his party with him. In the English-speaking provinces many Conservatives denounced a Canadian fleet as a tin-pot navy, useless, expensive, and separatist, and called for a gift of dreadnoughts. Mr. Borden's lieutenant from Quebec, Mr. F.D. Monk, came out strongly against either Canadian Navy or contribution unless approved by popular vote. So after a loyal attempt to defend the agreement of 1909, Mr. Borden found it necessary to change his position. By attacking the Laurier Navy as inadequate, and at the same time declaring that no permanent policy should be adopted without an appeal to the people, he endeavoured to keep both wings of his party in line the opposition in quebec was strengthened by mr henri barassa and his following nationalists in some respects perhaps but more rightly labeled colonialists or provincialists they dealt a shrewd blow in defeating the government candidate at a by-election held in november nineteen ten for drummond arthabasca sir wilfrid's old seat and though in all the other provinces the general elections of nineteen eleven were fought on the issue of reciprocity the navy was made the chief issue in quebec Conservatives formed a close working alliance with the Nationalists, who attacked the Prime Minister as a tool of the English imperialists, and pictured to the habitants the horrors of the Marine, of conscription, and the press gang. A little over a year after his accession to power in 1911, Sir Robert Borden brought down his naval proposals, providing for a gift or loan to Great Britain of three dreadnoughts to meet the current emergency, and promised to submit later on his permanent policy to the electorate. What that permanent policy would be he did not reveal it was stated that the government had not definitely decided against a canadian navy but the insistence upon the difficulty of building up a naval organization in canada and other remarks made it appear that some plan of permanent contribution with a share in the central controlling body was under contemplation sir wilfrid laurier vigorously opposed the proposals and adhered to the policy of a canadian navy and not to be outdone in bigness he now advocated two fleet units after a prolonged discussion and determined obstruction by the opposition the government introduced the closure and forced the bill through the commons only to see it rejected by the senate on the motion of sir george ross that this house is not justified in giving its assent to this bill until it is submitted to the judgment of the country the government's abrupt change of policy was in part due to the activity of the first lord of the admiralty mr winston churchill whether moved by his own impetuous temperament or by the advice of others mr churchill threw overboard the mckenna memorandum and endeavoured once more to revive the contribution policy he was not content with laying before the canadian prime minister the opinion of experts on the strategic questions involved and advising on means to reach the desired end but sought to influence public opinion in the dominions by word and act the memoranda sent at sir robert borden's request in january nineteen thirteen emphasizing the difficulty of building battleships in canada which was not proposed by the opposition and the difficulty of helping to man the two canadian fleet units though at the same time men were declared to be available for as many as five dreadnoughts if contributed were preceded by pressure on the malay states to contribute a battleship and were followed by mr churchill's announcement of his intention to establish at gibraltar an imperial squadron composed of dominion ships under the admiralty's control When Australia suggested that a special dominion conference to discuss the matter should be held in Canada, New Zealand, or Australia, the United Kingdom would not consent. It was made emphatically clear that Mr. Churchill was in favour of contribution, not as an emergency, but as a permanent policy. It was his doubtless well-meant and invited intervention in the dispute ignoring the principles by which imperial harmony had been secured in the past, which more than anything else stirred up resentment in Canada. The dispute in Canada turned partly on constitutional and partly on technical naval considerations. The Canadian Navy was opposed by some as tending to separation from the Empire, and by others as involving Canada in a share in war without any corresponding share in foreign policy. It was defended as the logical extension of the policy of self-government, which in actual practice, as opposed to pessimistic prophecy, had proved the enduring basis of imperial union. The considerations involved have been briefly reviewed in an earlier section. It need only be noted here that the constitutional problem was no more acute in December 1912 than in March 1909. Whatever the difficulties, they had been faced and accepted by all the other Dominions. Australia was irretrievably and proudly committed to her own navy, His Majesty's Royal Australian Navy. New Zealand announced her dissatisfaction with the original contribution policy. General Botha declared that South Africa would prefer a navy of our own, Not contribution, therefore, but local navies afforded the only basis of uniformity throughout the Empire. Given this attitude on the part of all the Dominions, there was little question that forms would soon follow facts, and each of the five nations be given its due place and weight in settling common issues of policy. On the more technical issues, there was equally wide divergence. A Canadian navy was attacked by some as useless even in the long run. Canada could not build up an adequate naval administration in half a century inefficiency and jobbery would mark the Navy's management. The sea was one, and the Navy should be one. Concentration at the supreme danger point, defence by attack, were the latest maxims of naval strategy. On the other hand, it was urged that what Australia had done Canada could do, and that the German Navy itself had been built up in twenty years. The sea was one, but it was tens of thousands of miles in width. The trade routes required protection, and the coasts must be guarded against sudden raids. Greater stress, however, was laid on the short-run arguments. That there was only one possible enemy, Germany, that war with her in a few years was inevitable, that when it came Great Britain's fleet would be overmatched or perilously equalled. were the insistent contentions of one party. That the Pacific required watching as well as the North Sea, that relations with Germany on Sir Edward Grey's testimony were improving and war unlikely, that if war came in a few years the naval power of Britain to say nothing of that of France and Russia would be overwhelming was the other party's oft-reiterated answer. It was urged also that the Canadian government's belief in the seriousness of the emergency must be judged by its acts, not its words. Had it believed war imminent and the naval situation so dangerous that its three dreadnoughts were required, it would unquestionably have been too patriotic to think for a moment of any other course but to bring on a general election of 1913 to override the Senate. That is now ancient history. The outbreak of the Great War threw the Canadian naval question, along with so many greater questions, into the melting pot. The temporary easing of the international situation after 1912 was followed by acute tension again, and this time the restraining forces gave way. The rivalry of Teuton and Slav in the Balkans, where of late the balance had tilted against the Central Powers because of the defeat of their quasi-ally, Turkey provided the setting. The murder of an Austrian prince by a Servian subject gave the occasion, and Germany set the fatal drama in motion. What part was played in her decision by dreams of world conquest or dread of being hemmed in by ever stronger foes, what part by the desire of a challenged autocracy to turn the people from internal reform to external policy, will not be certain until the chancelleries of Europe have given up their secrets, if certain then but whatever the motive all the world outside germany has agreed that had she willed she could have averted the fatal ending of those tense days of july nineteen fourteen when the intervention of the united kingdom was made inevitable and practically unanimous by the brutal attack on belgium canada never hesitated for a moment as to her attitude the rights of the immediate issue were clear the whole world's liberty was plainly at stake the struggle promised to task if not to overtask every resource of the mother country sir robert borden acted promptly and effectively and parliament when called in special session unanimously backed his actions in a few weeks the largest force that had ever crossed the atlantic sailed to england and throughout the war ten thousand upon ten thousand followed the dominions surprised the world and not least themselves by the greatness and effectiveness of the efforts made in the common cause at first distance or overconfidence prevented a full grasp of the crisis by the general public and even by the leaders of opinion but as time went on the sense of the greatness of the issue deepened resolution hardened and the only measures of effort were what the crisis called for and what canada could give the country was united as on few occasions here and there undigested groups of emigrants from the enemy lands stood out from the common enthusiasm but gave little overt trouble In Quebec, some but not all of the Nationalists supposed Canada's participation in the war, taking either the belated colonial view that it was Britain's part to fight the Empire's wars, or the more logical but inopportune view that Canada should not fight in a war when she had had no part in shaping the policy that went before it. They claimed to stand where practically all Canadians had stood a generation before. They forgot that meanwhile the world and Canada had moved forward. THE ORDEAL OF BATTLE PUT TO THE TEST THE FACTS AND THE THEORIES OF EMPIRE WHICH HAD BEEN SHAPING IN THE YEARS WHICH HAVE BEEN REVIEWED. THE SPLENDID RESPONSE OF THE WHOLE EMPIRE TO THE CALL OF NEED PROVED THAT IT WAS NOT THE WEAK AND CRUMBLING STRUCTURE THAT ENEMIES HAD HOPED AND ZEALOUS FRIENDS HAD FEARED. OF THEIR OWN FREE WILL, THE DOMINIONS AND EVEN INDIA POURED OUT THEIR TREASURES OF MEN AND MONEY IN MEASURE FAR BEYOND WHAT ANY CENTRAL AUTHORITY COULD HAVE ORDAINED freedom was justified of her children and the british empire proved its right to exist by its very difference from the prussian empire when general botha and general smuts after crushing with ease a rebellion which under a different imperial policy would have been triumphant led the army of the crown in triumph against the german dominions to which it had once been proposed to banish them they gave a most dramatic proof of the power of the unseen bonds of confidence and liberty yet as the war proved the empire had not yet reached its final stage now that the dominions helped to pay the piper henceforth they would insist on a share in calling the tune that the decision as to peace and war must no longer rest solely with the government of great britain however wisely that power had been used in this instance became a conviction of the many instead of the few it was still matter for serious debate how that greater voice could be attained and the conflict between the policy of consultation between existing governments and the policy of creating a new central over-government which had marked the years before bade fair to mark the years after the war as well the subsidiary question of naval defence had also its afterlights those in canada who had urged the contribution policy had the gloomy satisfaction of seeing their prophecy of speedy war with germany fulfilled those who had urged the policy of a canadian navy had the more cheerful satisfaction of seeing that the only emergency was that which faced the kaiser's fleet bottled up by the vastly superior allied forces the battle of the falkland islands redeeming the defeat at Coronel proved the wide range of action of fast cruisers based on european waters while on the other hand the raids of the emden proved the need of cruisers for defence on every sea and the exploits of the sydney sister ship of canada's unbuilt bristols ended all talk of tin-pot navies the lessons of the war as to ships and weapons and strategy were all important for the reconsideration of the question still more vital for the decision as to this and weightier matters were the secrets the future held as to the outcome of the war as to the future alignment of nations and above all as to the possibility of building up some barrier against the madness the unspeakable sufferings and the blind chaotic wastes of war more adequate than the secret diplomacy the competitive armaments and the shifting alliances of the past End of Nation and Empire, Part 3.